Hey folks, welcome to the Adventure Sports Podcast. My name is Mason, uh, and before we talk about today's episode, I wanted to let you know, I just got back from an amazing trip on a river, and I know we've had a lot of river and water-based content and episodes lately, and I think that's just you know the time of year. Sometimes it's just coincidental. We kind of go through ebbs and flows on the show. Sometimes we get a lot of mountaineers or backpackers or, um, gosh, whatever, you know, flight-based adventures, but right now there's just a lot of water. Um, one, I'm super interested in, I've been doing a river-based trip pretty much every eight weeks for the last year. Sometimes we do bike, biking and river base, but um, a little bit about this weekend. Uh, my friends and I, if you don't know, about a year and a half ago, committed to doing a trip together every eight weeks, no matter what, every eight weeks, not exactly eight weeks. Sometimes it's 10, sometimes it's, you know, seven, six or seven, uh, but we try to average it out to every eight weeks. We have an adventure to look forward to. And these adventures are close to home, around 24 hours. We tried to max it at 24 hours for a while, but it, honestly, they're creeping up to more like 48-hour trips, two nights camping, because what, what happens is we'll leave on a Friday night um, to go camp somewhere, wake up Saturday, do the adventure, camp Saturday, maybe finish the adventure or head home early on Sunday. They have been actually creeping a little longer than that lately to where it's like I'm gone Friday night to Sunday night pretty late, but trying to dial it back so that my family isn't without me super long. But doing it every eight weeks is awesome because you can fit so much adventure into a weekend, uh, uh, quite a lot. Like you, you can basically cover every major pillar of adventure from wilderness to, um, you know, camping out there to just like ticking all those boxes of fulfillment in just a weekend. Um, and it's been so much fun because no matter how busy life gets, I can I am able to find one weekend out of eight that I can make something happen with my friends. Uh, and it has grown. So this past weekend, we did the Ocklawaha River in Central Florida. And we saw, and some springs that were along the way, like 10 miles of springs. So just imagine crystal clear water, a bluish water actually, similar to the Caribbean, um, in a river, beautifully peaceful with gators and snakes and manatees and and fish and beautiful seagrass on the bottom um unbelievable and and it's for miles and miles of and there were actually monkeys out there wild monkeys it's these uh rhesus resus uh known kind of common term as a squirrel monkeys and they've been out there nearly a hundred years uh they're not they're not a native they're definitely invasive but it's just an amazing experience to see them out there um and it was so cool we had almost 20 people go on this one and it has grown from me and two friends to nearly 20 people every trip so if you would like to go if you find yourself in central florida in the next two months probably around mid-july let me know. We'd love to have you. We've got plenty of extra equipment, uh, camping gear. It is a ton of fun. We, we we take care of the food. So we just like pull all our money together to buy a bunch of food. And it's around, you know, it's around like literally like eight bucks a person. So not a lot. That's the only cost associated with the trip um, other than your your gas to get there. Um so it's it's been it's been awesome. It's been absolutely incredible. We've been doing this over a year and a half, and it was originally inspired by the episode Fraser Button um, that we had on, who commits with his friends every year to do one major trip. They just call it the big trip 
once a year, and they have all these really cool rules about how they make it happen with 15 to 20 very busy people to travel internationally or to travel across the country and make an adventure happen every year with the same friend friend group. So um, it's been awesome. So Fraser was the inspiration there. We were doing it a little bit before Fraser's episode came out a couple about a year and a half ago, but that definitely solidified the plan. So check that out. Just you know, look that up on our website, Fraser Button, F-R-A-Z-E-R, B-U-T-B-U-N-T-I-N, I believe. Um, but anyway, so yeah, that that was my weekend. And I'm excited to listen to this story again with Thomas Elpel because he literally carved out a 20-foot Douglas fir with the great, 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 great grandson of Captain William Clark of the Lewis and Clark expedition and followed a five-month expedition following the same exact route along the Missouri River that Lewis and Clark took all the way to Gateway Arch in St. Louis. So started in Montana, went to Missouri, unbelievable story. And Thomas is such an interesting, fascinating individual. He has a YouTube channel that shows him building his house by hand with the stones on his property, uh, all reclaimed wood and windows and just really always doing really interesting projects like that. Living out in Pony, Montana, way out in the middle of nowhere. And I I just love that stuff. And I love his lifestyle and what he's doing. So um, you're going to really enjoy the story, but I wanted to make sure all of y'all knew about the adventures I'm doing uh, and know that you're welcome to come. Just reach out and uh, let me know if you're in the area. All right, let's go ahead and jump in. Perfect. Well, you know, I, I know you just got off the Missouri River, but I actually don't know, like, what day did you actually finish the trip? Uh, November 3rd, we arrived uh, in St. Louis at the Arch. So that was that oh, was the end, God. and then it took uh, a little bit of time to get back to Montana. Oh, my gosh. Now, now could you see the Arch from quite a ways away? Um, a, a couple miles out, not a huge distance. So not like three days out you could see the Arch? No, no, the arch is, you know, we talk about paddling the length of the Missouri and the arch is actually on the Mississippi. So it's a, it's a sort of a symbolic ending point. Uh, there isn't really a good place to take, you know, if, if you just do the whole Missouri, there isn't any place to take out of the water there anyway. So, uh, and so the option is either you take out about three miles shy of the end of the Missouri or, you do, you finish the Missouri and you go around on the Mississippi a little bit and uh, paddle to the arch is just a nice uh, symbolic ending. Oh, absolutely. People know where it is. You know, it's nice, you know, like you said, ending point and it, and it assures that you did the whole Missouri, you know? Yes, it does. And <laughs> you don't have anybody questioning, well, you actually stopped where, you know, a mile before it actually is considered the Mississippi. And so you, yeah. you, you get to disregard all the naysayers. But but if you don't mind, I'd love to go back. Where are you coming from today for the interview? Uh, so I live in Pony, Montana, southwestern Montana, about a half an hour from the Missouri headwaters where the uh, Jefferson, Madison, and Gallatin rivers come together to form the Missouri River. So P- Pony, Montana, first of all, that's the name of the town, Pony? Wow. Pony is the name of the town, yeah. Must be pretty small. <laughs> It's pretty small and pretty sweet, uh, just nestled in the foothills of the uh, Tobacco Root Mountains. About 120 people here, and that's uh, just right for me. Wow, man. Have you ever, I mean, did you grow up there? Um, no, I went to uh, school over in Bozeman, 
uh, on the other end of the valley. So that's a little bigger. Uh, that's, a, that's a real town. <laughs> <laughs> Bozeman, man. Holy cow, man. 120 people. I went through one town one time in Montana called Judith Gap. I think it was 25. And I think I met everybody in town that day. <laughs> I, I walked through... Uh, did a walk across Montana 31 years ago that went we went through Judith Gap and uh, and we stopped and had pie at the restaurant there. So that is uh, hilarious. A walk <laughs> across Montana that sounds like an episode in itself. <laughs> oh, that was a long time ago. So so you're kind of you've been an adventurer for your whole life. It sounds like. Uh, well, yes and no. Uh, I, I did raise uh, four kids in between that expedition and this one, so. Uh, that had a lot to do with the current one is I'm um, a recent uh, empty nester and thought, Hey, I can, uh, you know, I've been, I've been saving up for a while to, uh, you know, to go do something. And, uh, and so, yeah, I wasn't sure I was, uh, debating between bicycling across the U S or, uh, walking the Appalachian trail or, or, uh, uh, paddling the Missouri and the Missouri won out. So that's, that was it for the year. <laughs> Oh man, I've got so many interesting, I'm like, I got so many tangents I want to go on. Uh, those are three great options. First of all, I'm definitely partial to the bike traveling, but mm -hmm. as far as the most unique of the three, you definitely chose the right one. Yeah. Well, I, I didn't really understand that beforehand. Um, you know, take like the Appalachian trail, there's thousands of people that start that every year and a couple Absolutely. hundred that finish. And uh, in comparison, uh, the Missouri River is similar in length to the Appalachian Trail. Uh, but if you look at the uh, on MissouriRiverPaddlers.com, they have a, a database of all the past expeditions. Uh, and if you look at the list through 1962 there, it's been like less than 50 people. And uh, that just seems crazy to me. Uh, it, um, you know, it, it has its, its challenging aspects, but... In comparison to say putting on a backpack and uh, walking the length of the Appalachian Trail, this is uh, seems easier in the sense that you know we've got canoes to carry our gear. Uh, we, you know, we 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 basically spend most of the uh, summer like turtles laying on a log, you know, drifting down the river. <laughs> you, you know, can carry however much booze, however much equipment, whatever you want, you can pretty much carry. I'm sure. Exactly. Yeah. So, um, uh, <laughs> yeah, it, it was, it was a good trip for sure. Man. Well, well, you know what you, I don't know what you're right. The, the AT would be harder, but there's also like a billion guides on how to do it and, you know, resources galore. And you wouldn't probably hardly have much of a experience of solitude or, or wilderness compared to something like this. So, you know, the fact that only 50 people-ish have, have done this, that is, there must have not been been that many resources to, to go off of, to, to plan. Um, yeah, I, yes and no. There are, um, there are some good resources out there. Uh, David Miller's book, The Complete Paddler, uh, was very helpful. And, uh, and I actually spent some, I mean, originally I was just thinking about winging it as far as, you know, you put the canoe in the water and you start paddling. But, um, the fact that I was paddling a, a very heavy, uh, hand carved, uh, dugout canoe, uh, meant that I had to coordinate some of our, uh, our portages around the dams. And so I had to be able to predict when we we're going to be there. 
And so I started laying out like a, a theoretical schedule to get at least through the first few dams. And then I ended up doing that uh, all the way down to St. Louis. Uh, so working between the uh, complete paddler book and uh, Google Earth, putting together, uh, you know, projected campsites for each day. And we didn't have to follow that, but um, it was it actually turned out being really helpful uh, having that as a, as a reference point. So, th- so there is a there is a guidebook out there for it. <laughs> that's a, just one though. No, I'm just playing. I'm sure there's. That's incredible. <laughs> I mean, you know, there's so many things you mentioned before. You raised four kids. First of all, holy cow! I'm on my first, and it's it's given me a time. But first of all, you're an empty nester. What did your kids think about this? They must have thought dad's crazy. Oh, they knew I was crazy. So, and I don't think it uh, surprised them too much. <laughs> <laughs> That is too cool, man. So, so, and I didn't even mention one of the most amazing parts of all this. You did this in a canoe that you dug out of a, a essentially a log. Yeah, yeah. So I worked with uh, Churchill Clark last year on that project. Uh, so he's the uh, great, 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 great grandson of Captain William Clark of the Lewis and Clark Expedition. And so we spent um, about three months uh, carving a canoe out of a big uh, Douglas fir log. And, uh, and we tested it last year, did a, a week-long trip on the Marias River here in Montana. And then uh, basically when we finished that trip, I started planning for this year's trip. Did you have any experience with, with digging out canoes out of, out of wood? Uh, I didn't, but he did. So he was the one who knew what he was doing. And uh, I just did grunt work to remove bulk material. Uh, so the engineering, the design of it... Um, uh, was all his uh, his part of that, and uh, also the artistic side of it. Uh, I don't know if you looked at any of the uh, the pictures online. But I did. Yeah, I got the uh, he carved the beaver face into the front. It's got a tail on the back, and uh, yeah, it just really turned into a g- gorgeous work of art. You know, I was just thinking, well, a, a dugout canoe, and I uh, hadn't you know thought in artistic terms of it, uh, but what uh, you know the touch he added was just amazing. And now, you know, be, being the like you said, the great 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 grandson of William Clark, is this just something he's done to kind of continue that tradition of, of expedition or of ruggedness? And yeah, you're right, it's beautiful. And I think her name was Bella. Um, now, did I, I, I kind of mixed up questions there? But is that something he's been he's been doing for a while? Uh, yeah. So the Lewis and Clark bicentennial uh, was. Uh, 2004 through 2006, mm-hmm. and uh, he hadn't had experience before that, but he um, figured, you know, hey, it was in the family, so he went out and uh, joined the reenactors that were retracing the route, and uh, so part of that, he ended up, um, you know, on a dugout canoe um, going upriver up the Missouri and then rode horses over the mountains and paddled down the other side to the Pacific and then came all the way back, uh, the following year there. And, um, and along the way, they, uh, or over one of the winter breaks there, they, um, he got experience working on a dugout canoe. And so now that's, that's what he does is he travels the country making dugout canoes. Uh, so he's made several and, um, I was lucky to to get him up to uh, our skills camp. Uh, I have a, a kids program and, a, and an adult program. The kids program is uh, Outdoor Wilderness Living School, or OWLS, 
And so I work with the public schools here to get the kids out of the classroom to do wilderness survival skills, uh, things like uh, starting fires by rubbing sticks together, uh, foraging for wild plants, uh, building shelters, a stocking game, so things like that. And so um, uh, the Canoe Project, it was more of a, one that they could learn about. It wasn't so much a hands-on uh, type project. but um, Kind of learn along you know, with you. Yeah, they could definitely, uh, they were interested. They were very interested in that. And then my adult program, uh, Green University, um, you know, as, uh, have students that come in and out of that. So we had um, some people get in on it that way as well. Wow. So you're sitting here now, this is a skill you didn't have. So you're learning this skill, but but it's probably safe to say for the other skills needed on the trip, you were pretty ready what what was it what was the process the the journey like making the canoe itself it sounded like it was almost as long as the the paddle itself <laughs> uh yes i mean there it, yes and no the we took off we did the majority of the work in the first 2 weeks oh, but okay. you know the closer you get to the end the longer it takes um and so you know it just went slower and slower as we were uh, fine tuning it um, and of course we're running kids camps in the middle of all that. So it's not like, uh, uh, the canoe was the only thing that was happening. Right. Of course. Yeah. Life still happens around adventures is what we learn on this show. You got <laughs> yeah. to fit it in where you can. We've talked to plenty of people who are like, I had 20, 30 years of raising kids and now I'm doing adventures and it's like, all right, that's awesome. Um, <laughs> and so you're, you're right on track for that. Was there ever a time where you just thought, man, forget this. Let me just go buy a canoe. Oh, not at all. No. Um, and, and same for being on the river. Uh, you know, the, the, the guys that were with me had modern canoes and I just had no desire to trade places with anybody. Uh, that's not to say it was always easier uh, in the dugout canoe because it's it definitely was not as streamlined or uh, you know and the lakes in particular is like paddling a log. <laughs> yeah. So um, literally. <laughs> uh, but there's something uh, just a little more solid and real about it. Um, it's and it's hard to describe, but you know when you paddle a dugout canoe, it's it's the real deal and. Uh, you know, so I just didn't want to, didn't want to leave that. <laughs> no, I, I, what an amazing aspect to add to it that a lot of people wouldn't even think about, you know, and, and just a, a way to, you've had a lot of time to think about the journey before you actually went on the journey. Oh uh, yeah. Yeah. And the fact that the uh, dugout canoe project came together is, is what had cemented the, uh, the decision, you know, whereas instead of doing a hiking trip or a biking trip, uh, the fact that that, uh, kind of serendipitously came together is what decided it, that I would do the, uh, the canoe trip. And, uh, another, uh, guy here had actually donated an old, um, uh, you know, worn out dugout canoe for a museum piece to my, uh, to my kids camp there. And, uh, and, and then he sold me his dugout canoe trailer, uh, that was custom built. And it's like, there's not a lot of dugout canoe trailers in the world, but this one just kind of landed in my lap. And so there's this kind of serendipitous uh, element that, um, all these things came together, uh, that, you know, it's like, yeah, okay, this, this canoe trip is going to happen. <laughs> it's meant to be. Yeah, exactly. Well, I, I tell you, you have an incredible like two-part uh, video 
two videos on your website that kind of show the process of making it and then show part of the journey. And oh, I'm going to totally link those because I really encourage people to take, what is it? Let's see, 30 minutes and 20 minutes. So yeah, less than an hour of your time to watch this. It's incredible. It's exciting. It, you just see the hard work that goes into it. And yeah, this is a this is a tree that you're working on, man. It is <laughs> enormous. Can you just tell people like, what was the length of your canoe overall and, and what was the weight and everything? Cause I, I think it's amazing. Yeah. So, um, a, a typical, um, tripping canoe would be about a 17 footer and the, the tree, the, uh, the dugout canoe is a 20 footer. So just slightly bigger. Uh, but it's quite heavy. The, um, I actually had a cottonwood picked out for it, but, uh, Churchill took a look at it and said it wasn't big enough. So then I went in, you know, went into panic mode looking for a big enough log, and uh, and we found this Douglas fir at a sawmill, and I got to tell you, Douglas fir is not a conventional uh, wood for doing uh, dugout canoes. It, it's hard, it's full of knots, and it cracks, and um, so not, not so, ideal. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so you know, we ended up. Um, well, for one thing, we use a lot of power tools working on it because it's like we'd chop at the uh, chop at those knots and the tools would just bounce off. And I so, saw that. Um, and I thought I'm like, is the blade turned around? Because it would just bounce <laughs> right off. I'm like, no, they're hitting it with the blade. It is like yeah. hitting concrete. Yeah. So um, and the other thing is that Douglas fir is heavy. That uh, like cottonwood apparently loses, um, I think it's like half its weight when it dries out. Whereas Douglas fir loses like 10% of its weight, and uh, and we've we've said uh, Churchill and I said from you know once we finished the canoe that it weighed like about 500 pounds, uh, but we never actually weighed it, and um, and you know four of us can't even lift the head off the, the ground, so uh, concluded it must be considerably more than 500 pounds. And so um, I, I'll, I'll weigh it one of these days. This hasn't happened yet, but um, uh, my guess is it could be as high as like 900. So it's, it's a heavy canoe. It definitely uh, don't throw it over your shoulders to uh, portage. <laughs> yeah, logistically, that's got to just make so many things so different than a normal canoe trip. Because you know, I, I yeah, I've done canoe canoeing. I can just pick it up myself. But this, like, what did you do to? I mean, was it hard to paddle in the water or get moving? Uh, no, I mean, it, it really actually paddles quite well. Uh, certainly not, uh, you know, like a sleek uh, canoe or kayak, but um, it, it paddles just fine. And it has enough mass that once you, you know, get it moving, uh, it takes a little bit of, you know, breaking to, uh, if you're coming into shore, you got to make sure you're not coming in too hot. <laughs> oh, man. No kidding, 900 pounds, potentially 900 pounds of wood flying in the yeah. shore. <laughs> um, of course, it, you know, we can't, you know, a lot of canoes, you would you would um, take them out of the water when you get to camp. Uh, it's nice to have that option that you can just pull it up on shore. And that is, uh, you know, not, did not happen with the dugout canoe. Uh, so that just, you know, it was a factor sometimes in choosing campsites uh, and finding a suitable place, uh, you know, where we could uh, tie up or drive a stake in, knowing that we would have to uh, leave the canoe in the water and slog through the mud to go back and forth uh, to get the gear. Wow, what a fascinating twist to put on just, you know, a canoe trip. 
when did you uh when did you start the journey uh so we started uh june 1st so it was uh five months and uh three days um from yeah from three forks montana to st louis missouri and that's about uh, the river itself is 2341 miles and you miss a little bit here and there because of dams but um uh you know we did probably in the range of 2300 miles anyway holy cow and now can you just tell us what once you got the canoe built you had some logistics your logistics figure out you know, did, did you have to research the river or were you familiar enough with the river to know, you know, you did the whole river from Three Forks, Montana to St. Louis. Like, what is the mood of this river? It, 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 is there rapids and, and dangers you have to watch out for like that? Um, as far as, you know, rapids and all that goes, it's, um, uh, the Missouri is exceptionally tame. Uh, it, it's actually kind of shocking that a river could be so long and, um, so flat, <laughs> Um, so there, yeah, there isn't much for, um, rapids. Uh, and the main thing though, is that, of the, uh, there's 15 dams on the river with reservoirs. And so there's 700 miles of flat water. Uh, basically one third of the river is flat water impounded behind the dam. So that, that's like, uh, paddling from Seattle to San Francisco on a lake. And, uh, so that was, you know, that's one thing Lewis and Clark didn't have to deal with. Uh, but, uh, you know, we did. And the, the lakes are a trial for sure. Oh, I can imagine. I, I guess you lose the uh, the flow of the river at that point. Yeah. Um, so, you know, some of the smaller lakes are, are fine because they're, you know, if they're skinny enough or they're not too windy, then we can paddle and fine. But wind is a major challenge. Uh, the first biggish lake that we encountered, uh, Canyon Ferry Lake here in Montana, uh, we had a, actually a pretty nice day on the river. And then we hit the lake and we went in right into uh, just a, a headwind blew up out of nowhere. And uh, there, in that part of the uh, reservoir, there was a bunch of uh, what they call the duck ponds that have that are riprap so it's kind of steep rocky banks there's nowhere where we could land safely and so we're just basically stuck in the lake paddling into the wind uh, moving forward with you know inches at a time and uh, so hours later uh, we finally got past the uh, the duck ponds and uh, you know saw a sandy beach and then just went for it hoping to um, you know, get out of the canoes and just lead the, uh, lead them by ropes uh, along the, the lakeshore. Uh, but one problem uh, with the, that's unique to the uh, dugout canoe is that um, when you get on, you get up to the shore. If there's any uh, winds, waves coming in from the side, uh, they just hit the side of the canoe and leap over into the canoe and so basically filled it up like a bathtub uh, in seconds <laughs> and so this was a, a trial in our uh, first week there uh, <laughs> that we had to deal with and fortunately the wind subsided just after that and so uh, you know bailed out the canoe and uh, you know restocked uh, the gear in there and uh, paddled into camp but um, yeah we had another incident like that on that lake where actually I had the canoe as far out of the water as could really get a, you know, a heavy canoe out. And, um, 
you know, we were just camped there, but the wind came up in the night and filled the, 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 uh, the canoe like a bathtub. So, you know, it's pretty much sitting on shore full of water. <laughs> and, oh, my uh, gosh. So, you know, I learned from that that we just had to find a, a nicely protected harbor uh, to camp at when we're on the lakes. It was never really an issue on the river, but on the lakes, um, had to find suitable spots that were protected uh, to camp each night. Let's take a quick message break and hear from the folks that help make this show possible. Hey folks, I want to give a shout out to our newest sponsor, The Bourbon Pursuit. It's a podcast all about bourbon, the craft of bourbon. And you might be thinking, you know, I'm I'm a fan of bourbon, I like bourbon, but I'm not I don't love bourbon. Well, this show's probably going to change that. What I've learned is that even things I don't feel like I'm interested in, if someone can explain it to me why it's an, an interesting or what the craft behind it is, I find myself getting more and more interested in it. And I could absolutely see bourbon being one of those things. Uh, as you know, I work for a non-alcoholic brewery, but I, you know, I still enjoy a good alcoholic drink. Not not much. You know, I'm a busy guy, so I can't drink too much. But I do enjoy a good bourbon. Um, when we got married. My wife and I got some bourbon as a gift, and I just had never considered it till then, and and I was really surprised by how much I enjoyed it. Uh, but since, it's kind of just fallen off. Life's gotten busy, but I am excited to learn more through the Bourbon Pursued podcast. They are the official podcast of bourbon and the best source of all bourbon news, reviews, uh, interviews with CEOs, distillers, ambassadors for, for, for the industry. They are where you go to get news and interesting information about bourbon. So join the hosts, Kenny Coleman, Ryan Cecil, and Fred Minnick on an epic bourbon adventure. You can subscribe and follow them wherever you get podcasts. And I can't thank them enough for supporting a fellow creator like me. Uh, and they're just, you know, a couple people working on a show just like me. So if, if you want to support them and thank them for what they're doing uh, for Adventure Sports Podcast, go check out bourbon pursuit that is plenty of that for now let's get back into the episode my goodness man so many just things like that i wouldn't even think about having to deal with but once you implement a, a canoe that's essentially a tank on the water you've got <laughs> you've got all that kind of things to think about so how, how did you deal with portaging it down those dams yeah, well, I, uh, I mentioned that um, that trailer, the custom built trailer, yes. and because because the canoe was so heavy, um, I I brought the trailer, and um, it might sound like an, a logistical nightmare to um, uh, bring a trailer without a truck uh, down the river while we're paddling a, a canoe, but actually it was one of those serendipitous things. It just worked out quite miraculously. Uh, of course, close to home, I had uh, friends and family that were able to help us. But um, downstream, just um, ran into people either uh, sometimes just right at the boat ramp that could uh, drive our trailer down to the next dam, or we connected with people online uh, who could do it. And, um, you know, some cases people were uh, were going that way anyway. There's uh, one fellow out in South Dakota who um, – he was driving to Tennessee and volunteered to drive the uh, the trailer drop it off in St. Louis on his way through, and so and and he uh, actually was coming back when uh, like two days after we got off the water. So 
he hitched the trailer up and gave us a ride uh, partway back, and then uh, I rented a U-Haul from there to drive back to Montana. So, um, so basically, yeah, I just hopped the trailer off from volunteer to volunteer all the way down the river and uh, hoped it would be there when we uh, got to the next dam, <laughs> and it was. My gosh, man, isn't that awesome that you just, you don't have to figure out every little detail before you leave and just have, honestly, have faith in people that, oh, you know totally, what, yes. you're going to meet somebody. And and so I, I assume you back the trailer in down a boat ramp, load the load the dugout canoe on, and then go to the other side of the dam and, do, and drop you off. Is that, that's how it works? Exactly. Works? Okay. Yeah. And then they'd take it to the next one. Yep. That is crazy that you just, I mean... What 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 a way to have faith in people and and it paid off you know it actually worked that's that's the way it should be you know that was a really just uh, I, I feel like we met some of the nicest people on the planet on this trip and that was uh, really one of the highlights of the journey well I'm sure everybody and their mother saw you and wanted to talk to you for you know as long as I'm talking to you for like what in the heck are you doing <laughs> uh, yeah well they where'd you get that log. Uh, some recur, yeah, they definitely we drew crowds in, <laughs> and yeah, you know that's so neat that the Missouri it, it was able to you were able to do that for essentially the entire time. Can I tell you what what was like? How beautiful was it out there? How was the scenery, especially early on coming out of the mountains of Montana? Oh yeah, it was it was pretty incredible. Um, there's there's parts that I have paddled before the. Um, the, the the part closest uh, to me, the you know Missouri headwaters down to Canyon Ferry Lake, have done that uh, many times because we like to go uh, carp hunting there with bows and arrows. And I paddled the uh, wild and scenic uh, stretch of the river in uh, central Montana uh, a long time ago. But um, yeah, there are some very spectacular uh, parts. The, uh, the Gates of the Mountains uh, here in Montana was uh, amazing, and I had never done that before. And the wild and scenic part, I realized after paddling it a second time that I'm going to have to go back and do that a third time. Uh, but I think the real surprise was that it, the, the river stayed beautiful uh, beyond there. Uh, Fort Peck Lake um, out in eastern Montana is really quite gorgeous. Um, it's, it's a bear to paddle. I mean, it's a huge lake. Uh, but it is incredible country. It's all badlands, uh, badlands and prairie out there. Um, but it's so beautiful, and uh, I just love to uh, to get out and explore. And you know, that's the thing is, I, I could take another month just paddling the Montana portion uh, of the Missouri River. And uh, you know, Montana is a big state. There's actually one third of the entire length of the Missouri River is in Montana. Wow. So we spent two months, two months just crossing Montana. Uh, and, um, you know, it's widely considered the most beautiful part of Missouri. Uh, but I, I was, uh, actually quite amazed getting into, uh, North Dakota, uh, Lake Sakakawea in particular, uh, was just gorgeous. Uh, I had expected in the Dakotas just to see like wind swept plains and, uh, you know, no trees at all, but, um, uh, no, it was, uh, uh, some kind of badlandsy, but it was more like good landsy, badlandsy. If that makes any sense, it was more fertile. <laughs> you know, I've Montana. Uh, say good landsy. <laughs> <laughs> Eastern Montana can be pretty uh, desolate, and in, in fact, it was a month between towns out there at, at one point. Um, a month between towns. Yeah, there's just any, any isn't anything else out there. Um, but yeah, out in the uh, Dakotas, um, 
yeah, it was, it was really beautiful, uh, kind of like fertile badlands, um, and you know, all the, the bluffs, the, um, the little Midwestern forests and the coolies, uh, it was quite amazing. And, um, yeah, so really quite beautiful all the way down. And, and then of course we hit the fall colors in the last uh, few weeks of the trip, uh, down South. And that was, that was uh, really beautiful and very different than the fall colors I'm used to here in Montana, because uh, we have we don't have as many tree species. So like our uh, our fall colors are beautiful here in terms of we get this golden carpet of uh, or you know down the the rivers cottonwoods, are. but down there uh, in Missouri it was just all these different colors, uh, more of a painting of uh, um, you know many different hues, and uh, so that was just a real treat. Man, I can't imagine how awesome that was. Uh, you know, I, 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 I've found that, you know, when you're adventuring through somewhere, especially, especially not driving, but like when you're on an adventure in the middle of something, the places that may not seem as exciting, uh, geographically or just for whatever reason, uh, they really surprise you because you're seeing things at such a different pace than you were thinking about or such a, in a, in a different area. And, you know, I've been able to bike quite a few of the states, and some of the most memorable experiences have been in what would be considered some of the most mundane places, and those are the most cherished memories. Oh, for sure, yeah. Yeah, and I think, um, you know, my view of um, of the states we toured is probably a little bit skewed because I saw it all from the, from the water. Uh, you know, like the Dakotas, uh, it was like, it was amazingly green and hilly and yeah, I don't know. I exactly saw the same Dakotas anybody else has, but uh, I think we saw the best part. <laughs> uh, man, I'm telling you that water, that water draws the greenery, you know, so it's very, very well might be true. And this year was exceptionally green. That was, I think one of the big surprises is, uh, I just anticipated it would be hot and dry with, uh, temperatures you know from 80 to 100 degrees every day but um we had a, a just you know like rainstorm it seemed like a, about every four days we would get another big rainstorm and it was uh it was spring green all the way across the dakotas all the way down uh, and then they had um, spring flooding this year and uh we started fairly late uh since i work with kids in may we started June 1st, which is later than most paddlers do. Mm -hmm. But um, so we were behind the floods uh, most of the way. But once we got down there far enough, uh, it was yeah pretty heavy flooding and, and kind of unprecedented to have this high of water this late in the year. And um, I and nearly tied 2011 for the highest uh, total runoff uh, ever um, in the watershed. And that was also interesting to uh, just from the standpoint that uh, here in Montana, if you've if you have you know when you have a flooded river, they they really rage, you know, and it's like uh, you don't paddle flooded rivers. But um, the Missouri is just so big that it's more like a slow moving lake, um, and so even when it's flooded, it's it's not uh, super hazardous. Why why don't you paddle flooded rivers? Like uh, like the Jefferson River here, uh, when it's up, it's moving pretty fast, and the the turns of the corn, you know, the bends are oh, pretty okay. tight. Okay, I uh, see. And so yeah, it, it's it's pretty hazardous. Uh, and 
but even uh, the Missouri River, just at the headwaters down here, uh, I've taken uh, you know kids out there to go carp hunting during flood season because uh, the the river is just big enough that um, a little bit of flooding isn't a, a big deal. Uh, it just you know it's just bigger and flatter basically. Uh, and yeah, yeah say, it, it sounds like there's just more playground at that point. Yeah, you know, that's the funny thing on Missouri is that uh, you know if you're standing on the on the bank, uh, I mean, up in Montana the current moves pretty slow, but the the channelized river uh, in the 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 last 700 miles of the Missouri River there, where it's been uh, straightened and deepened, uh, when you're standing on the bank, it looks like it's moving really fast, but when you're out on the water, it's uh, almost like you're standing still. Um, and, and part of that is just because it's it's so big that you're far away from the banks, so um, you don't have the you know the feeling that you would on a small river of moving super fast. Um, so uh, yeah, but you know, looking at it rush by, it, it was really moving and it was going uh, at times six or seven miles an hour, which uh, is is actually fairly fast. Absolutely. And now you guys obviously didn't have an issue with. Uh having plenty of places to get water, of course, but how did you deal with food? Did you, is it like the backpacking world where you have like maybe pre-planned meals or backpacking meals? Did you kind of you know, put caches out there ahead of time? How, how did that work with like the distances in between towns? Yeah, well, we didn't really, um, our group didn't really coordinate between us. Everybody kind of prepared in their own way. Uh, for me, uh, you know, I, as a writer, I focused on the important things like building my uh, building a wooden desk to fit in my canoe. <laughs> and uh, when it came time to <laughs> when it came time to um, uh, get food, I just opened up the kitchen cabinet and uh, pushed you know in basically anything that I wouldn't get around to eating at home. You know, <laughs> all the little random bags of uh, uh, rice and beans and whatnot, flour and that all went into. Um, uh, as this plastic barrel that I carried. And, um, you know, the main thing is we knew we had a month long section without, uh, between towns that we had to have a month long supply of food for that, even though most of the rest of the trip was, uh, you know, usually just days between towns or, uh, at most a, a week or two. But, um, uh, so we, yeah, we brought plenty of food and uh, we did some foraging really as much as we could. Uh, the first week was really one of our, our best for wild food foraging in terms of uh, we hit the wild uh, the greens, the, well, the um, morel mushrooms were up. So we had some great mushrooms. It was a good place for hunting carp with bows and arrows um, and lots of uh, yeah, wild greens. So we really uh, ate royally there. And, um, and then and less so in other places, just depending on what was available. Uh, but in some places, particularly Fort Peck Lake, uh, uh, some of the guys, uh, Scott and John in particular, did a lot of uh, fishing and uh, brought in some monster uh, northern pike and catfish and uh, a little everything, really. And uh, so we ate really good um, with that. Um, and... Yeah, so, and, you know, we, we'd start out with fresh food whenever we left town and then switch over to dry goods. Uh, but uh, overall, we, we ate uh, like kings out there. <laughs> Man, that, that, uh, I mean, did, did you hear what you just said? You said you were bow fishing in Montana. 
in a dugout canoe retracing the path of Lewis and Clark. Does that is is that get through to you just how amazing that sounds like that's, <laughs> it doesn't sound real <laughs> i suppose <laughs> i mean as a writer that's like the most beautiful thing man it's just like what <laughs> that was your life for six um, you know five months essentially good lord that is amazing. i actually have a, um, i have a video on youtube of the car hunting with bows and arrows you know so it's modern canoes not the dugout but um you know, this is something I, I like to do. And, uh, you know, that's the thing is that the uh, carp were in, originally introduced here for food and uh, modern Americans really disdain them as trash fish. But uh, they're, they're considered uh, uh, like a Christmas dish in some uh, some Eastern European countries. And they're really quite good. So I was I was hoping to uh, hunt for carp all the way down. But it was really just this first week was the only spot that we found that was really good for hunting them. Wow. You know, I've actually never had one just because I've heard that, but I'd love to try it. I have no qualms about giving it a shot and definitely plentiful in places. So that might be, heck, I'd love to acquire a taste for them. That's for sure. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, you might be surprised. They're really quite good. Good. That's good to hear. I'm, you know, everyone says that, but I've never been picky, so I don't know why I listened to them in the first place. <laughs> but you keep saying we, and I apologize. I haven't asked who was all on the trip with you. Yeah, so there's um, really five of us that um, were on the you know on on the official expedition. Other people that came and go, and there's four of us that uh, that finished that did the whole thing. So that was um, Scott Robinson of Colorado, uh, John Gentry of Tennessee, Chris Dawkins of Washington State, and myself. Uh, and you know, I, I do canoe trips every year, typically one or two weeks where I just say, I'm going canoeing. Who wants to come with me? And, uh, so I'm used to canoeing with, um, you know, people that are either strangers or, uh, you know, friends, family, former students, uh, from my green university program, basically whoever wants to come along. And, um, and so that's what I did on this, and I, uh, it's actually it's hard to find uh, people that can uh, drop everything, even if they want to go. It's, mm-hmm. it's hard for people to walk away for uh, what, what I said would be up to six months um, to, to do a trip like this. So I, I was lucky to get the crew, uh, you know, to get a, a, an actual crew, and um, yeah, I ended up with some great guys. You know, I will say, and, and as we hear, list, you know, I hear from listeners all the time, it's not the lack of desire that keeps people from going. It's really the lack of, you know, being able to just work it out in normal life. And it, it usually does have to wait for a time where they're either, you know, before kids or after kids, you know, with like yourself, empty nester. But, you know, that's, that's, I, I can guarantee a lot more people wanted to go, but couldn't. Yeah. <laughs> Well, so so were, were you? So with with your canoe, were you the only one in it, or were all four of you in it? How, how did that work with with the vessels? Um, so there was uh, yeah two people in this canoe, and then uh, the other canoes were you know partnered sometimes, and it, we kind of it was shifting uh, different things as we went along. So sometimes solo paddling canoes, sometimes partnered up. Um, but we and everybody took turns uh, paddling the dugout canoe. So I was I was in the dugout canoe full time, all the way to St. Louis, and then everybody else uh, rotated through, uh, with Chris and I being the main the the principal paddlers of that. 
and, so you uh, and then got a uh, break. I didn't. I didn't want to break. No, I didn't want to be on uh, the other canoes. And uh, yeah, actually, out in eastern Montana, um, uh, Chris had uh, picked up a stray dog uh, on the uh, reservation out there, and uh, as a puppy, two-month-old puppy. And so that that uh, Jubilee is what he named her. And so we uh, then had a dog uh, on the canoe. She grew up on the canoe, actually. Oh my! Are you kidding me? <laughs> If I would have said that with the bow hunting sentence I put together, that would have just there's your there's a bestseller right there. That sounds like Huckleberry Finn or something. Man, this is ridiculous. <laughs> That's amazing. So you had a dog named Jubilee join you the whole time. Uh, yeah. So it was uh, about oh, well, I guess you know, in, into I'd say the trip. six weeks. Okay, probably six weeks into the trip, uh, she came on board and and did all the rest. Yeah, I mean, she really grew up on the canoe. How, how did she? How did she do? Did she ever jump out or fall out or any sort of challenges in that sense? Raising raising a dog on the canoe trip. Uh, well, the main thing was that um, you know she was an energetic puppy, and it was a little hard for her to uh, get on the canoe in the morning, you know, to settle down. Uh, and, and you know she would whine, but after a while she'd settle down, and um, and you know short days were fine. Uh, but there were there were times when we needed to be just on the water all day, and that was really tough on her. Um, but you know, the short days were okay because we'd get to uh, get to camp, and she'd have plenty of time and and freedom to run around, and that's what she need really needed. So, so you know, you've mentioned a few times of just different kinds of challenges. Do, do you feel there were any? By, by the way, I didn't mean to just uh, rush through that. That is. First of all, crazy that the dog was on there. I had no idea. None of my research, I saw a dog. Um, so that just, I'm really delighted by that. That's a really cool aspect that I didn't know about. So that's, that's so <laughs> fast. Where, where, I'm going to ask, where's the dog now? Oh, uh, he's so yeah, Jubilee and Chris belong together. Uh, yeah, she has such a sweetheart. Um, it was really a thrill to have her along. Just uh, made every day fun you know having that little puppy energy running around with the dog um yeah just a real sweetheart that is too cool man i, I love that and now you, you know you 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 teach a class that's you know teaching you know because a school that teaches wilderness uh skills and, and self-sufficiency was there anything i don't know did you notice anything in your skill set that was lacking on the experience where it's like wow i didn't expect i'd needed that as much as I do, or did you feel pretty well prepared? Um, I felt pretty well prepared, actually. Uh, I guess the main thing is, is that um, I'm just not real big on fishing pole fishing. And um, so, you know, I didn't do that. The other guys were doing that. And um, if they were catching fish, then, uh, then there was no need for me to. And if they were not catching fish, then I definitely didn't want to. <laughs> so, um uh, you know, we, so we had a degree of specialization like that, and uh, and Scott was also the uh, the GPS guy, so um, he brought the equipment uh, for that. That you know, I could give him a, a list of coordinates, GPS coordinates for all the campsites, uh, pro proposed campsites down the river. He could plug those in, and um, you know, make sure that we could find those places and know how far we had to go. Um, or if we needed to input a new site, you know, we could do that and, and navigate to that, uh, easily. So, 
uh, so that was very helpful. And, you know, I didn't uh, have to do it. I didn't have to learn it. Um, I just, uh, you know, was glad to uh, find such a good partner that could handle that part. So you, you seem pretty laid back about all this and pretty, uh, you know, didn't seem like there was a ton of surprise. Was there anything that was incredibly challenging about it for you or, or a part of it that was the most challenging or difficult? Well, certainly the, uh, the lakes the and lakes. I, and that's okay. the thing is like, I knew they would be challenging, uh, ahead of time. I had enough experience to know that. And, and that's the thing is that, um, you know, I, I, I paddled the Missouri river, but I, I don't really think of myself as a paddler. I, I, you know, I like canoeing, I canoed the Missouri river, which to me is different than paddling. And so, um, I'm kind of a landlubber and, uh, you know, there's a lot of guys that are just happy to get out there and just dig into the water and, and, and paddle. That's what, that's what a lot of people do is they just want to paddle to the end. And to me, I just wanted to paddle to get someplace interesting to, uh, get out and hike and explore. So I'm really not that fond of paddling, actually. Okay. So, so <laughs> that was, that, how would you explain that difference? Is canoeing just kind of flowing with the river? Uh, well, yeah, I mean, there's that flowing with the river, uh, it, um, you know, to me, I wanted to see everything along the way. I wanted to explore, uh, you know, check out every rock and tree and bush. <laughs> and, you know, so we're doing hiking and um, take layover days just to get out and see the area. Uh, we went to a lot of historical sites. Uh, so really uh, being tourists, um, as opposed to kind of the idea of, of getting out and conquering the river, you know, uh, that the goal is, you know, to get to the end. That was always kind of secondary. Mm. Um, but anyhow, the, uh, the lakes were, um, you know, the major concern even before we left and, uh, I wanted to paddle some of that, but not all of that. And, uh, we did do, uh, um, Fort Peck. I mean, we paddled all the lakes down to Fort Peck, uh, which was a, um, Fort Peck is, uh, I don't remember, over a hundred miles long. Um, so just this immense lake. Uh, out in eastern Montana, and um, it can be pretty challenging with the wind and the waves out there. But um, we, uh, you know, we did it. We uh, pulled it off. We we're very proud of that, and just didn't necessarily want to do it again. And uh, when we got out to uh, Lake Sakakawea in North Dakota, uh, we paddled the first part into uh, a marina there, where we met a guy who he wanted to join us for. Um, to paddle part of the the river, and um, when he was coming, I you know he asked if there is anything uh, we needed, and I said, well, do you happen to have an outboard motor laying around? <laughs> <laughs> and this was just another one of those many serendipitous things. Uh, is he actually brought an outboard motor, and we strapped it to the back of the the dugout canoe, and we lashed the um, uh, Scott's old town canoe to it. And then we were towing, uh, another canoe and, um, and yeah, when we first put this together, by the time we got it done, it was, uh, getting into the afternoon, which is when the winds really pick up, but we were, uh, eager, eager to get out there. And so we, uh, we motored out onto the lake into this headwind. And then of course, with the water coming in, you know, the waves coming in between the two canoes that was sloshing up over, over the sides. And so we basically traveled, uh, or traded, um, paddling for sponging. So you were, you know, uh, sponging and bailing, uh, continuously as we're, uh, jetting down the lake at 1.8 miles per hour. 
Oh man, that poor motor. <laughs> <laughs> and they, uh, you know, and there wasn't really anything to lash to on the dugout canoe, so all the lashings are super loose. And the, uh, you know, with the waves, the uh, the two canoes are kind of seesawing up and down at different rates, and the lashings are lurching back and forth, and the water's coming in, and it it, it seemed like an eternity to uh, to get to the first bay that we could get out. Uh, uh, off the lake at um and that was only like three miles from where we started that day <laughs> oh but uh, in principle we proved that the, the the motor could work uh you know it could only get better from there if we had better weather uh so yeah so we used that um across all the lakes in the dakotas which was um uh, lake sakakawea Oahe, uh lake sharp and lake francis case which is between them um thinking in the range of 400 or yeah probably 400 miles uh and that took us uh six weeks <laughs> with a motor um and a lot of that time was just spent waiting for the wind to stop blowing uh so that we could get out on the lake uh we could we, you know we, we could move about uh, four and a half miles an hour under ideal conditions and um so yeah six weeks puttering along uh, across all those lakes. And uh, if we hadn't done that, I wouldn't be home yet. <laughs> really? Wow. That's, did, did, was anyone on the team, I mean, was there, how'd you guys do relationally? Was anyone frustrated with the pace at any time? Cause I've definitely done adventures kind of both ways, you know, for the enjoyment, kind of more traveling, going to see sites and the others or you know, going straight to the finish line. And I will say you have more fun when you're uh when you're just kind of meandering at least i do yeah um for the most part uh, uh pretty good the um uh john was more eager to get to the finish line uh mostly because he had obligations at home uh he needed to get back to uh, but uh most of the time it just made sense to uh stick together and then when we got uh down near omaha nebraska uh, that's when he really uh, jetted ahead. Uh, you know, we'd long done, we'd, we'd long ago sent the uh, motor into storage, so we we're just back to paddling. Uh, but we had a, a pretty fast current, and uh, you know, if you just put enough hours, you could really get in the miles. So uh, he went ahead of us at that point and reached St. Louis about two weeks before we got there. Man, just the fact that you guys all were able to stick together that long and get that many people to take that much time off is. Pretty amazing. What an experience. Uh, you know, I found out about you through um, Daniel Hurd. Oh, yeah. He said he joined you for part of it. I, I, I don't, I didn't, he didn't tell me exactly what that was. So I actually don't know. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, yeah, Dan is uh, bicycling the lower 38 state or 48 states for uh, suicide awareness. Um, and so we had uh, paddled into. Uh, I think it was a Decatur, um, Nebraska, and you know all these little. There's so much flooding that, uh, like this park had been flooded, I think three times that year or this year, and uh, and there was another big storm coming, and so the park uh, uh, manager, you know, suggested we come pitch our tents inside this uh, sheltered area, and we did, and there was uh, Dan was already um, camped there with you know, with his bicycle and his tent there. And so we met and started hanging out together and we were going more or less the same direction. So, um, we started 
basically traveling together. He was going by bike and we were going by canoe and we'd uh, uh, camp together at uh, towns along the way and then go touring uh, some of the historical sites uh, around. And uh, so, yeah, that was, that was a lot of fun. Um, just, uh, he's such a great guy and uh, it was fun um, connecting up in you know, town after town. <laughs> That's so cool, man. Yeah. Dan was on the but, show earlier this year and oh, he's just been a pleasure. He reaches out pretty often with where he is and connecting us with, you know, with new, new potential guests. And he's just, ah, he's just a great guy. Oh, he's terrific. Yes. That's awesome. And I love what he's doing. So once he, uh, once he comes through here, we're definitely going to try to do something live, but, uh, yeah, he, I, he told me about this. I'm like, really, you ran into them and just joined them <laughs> for a little bit. That is amazing. It's just, you just never know who's out there doing what it's so amazing <laughs> to me who, who, just just incredible to me and uh mm-hmm. when you put yourself out there you never know who you're going to run into that's for sure <laughs> <laughs> that's yeah it's an understatement for sure so you, you know you get back home you've only been home a couple weeks man what has it been hard to readjust to normal life back in pony montana well you got to realize this is pony montana there's only 120 people here so I live in a, a stone and log house. I built myself. I cook on a wood stove. Uh, it's, you know, this has kind of been my life for doing, um, you know, I, I write books on wilderness survival and botany and sustainable living and uh, uh, go camping a lot. This uh, isn't that drastically different. You know, it's not like I'm going back to a cubicle. So right. uh, the adjustment isn't that uh, difficult for me. And I was uh, I was writing the entire time. That's my my primary occupation is um, uh, you know I write books and uh, I was writing the entire time we were out. Uh, I wrote a a blog that was picked up as a newspaper column by uh, newspapers along the Missouri River, and um, so right now I'm working on uh, turning that into a book. Uh, so. Um, yeah, so I'm kind of still actually living the trip right now because I'm immersed in it every day. <laughs> Man, that's that's the way to do it. We do talk to a lot of people that their their normal life is just so starkly different, and it's it's a whirlwind, you know, trying to readjust. I've definitely been there, um, and I've had other trips where I move into like a barn afterwards, and it just feels like the adventure just keeps on going. <laughs> but, uh-huh. <laughs> uh, so for you. What an amazing ability to like come home, really process it, and really, you know, keep keep that thread of creativity and that thread of excitement going. Uh, you, do you mind sharing? Where can people find out more about your books and about your story? Uh, sure. So you can go to uh, lpel.info. So that's uh, my last name, uh, Tom Elpel. E L P is in Paul. E L dot info. And uh, so there's information and videos about the, you know, making the canoe, um, links to the blog and everything. And, um, and there's links on that page to my books as well. And since this one is mostly written, it won't actually take that long to, uh, to put it together. And I think uh, by March it should be in print. It's uh, five, five months on the Missouri River paddling a dugout canoe. Oh, my gosh. I, I am going to get a copy you, I'm going to keep in touch because I want to, I want to be on the the list, the pre-order list, because this sounds incredible. I I can totally, I've never done a trip this long on the water, but I'd love to. Um, you know, that being said, what, what advice do you have for people who, who maybe have an idea and want to do something like this? 
Um, yeah, I think uh, the main thing is is to give it the time it needs and not to rush it. Uh, you know, to I, I just really don't not into that uh, getting to the finish line thing. I think um, that just causes a lot of unnecessary stress and uh, you know repetitive stress injury and all that. Uh, that um, you know allow the time um, whatever time the journey needs. Um, yeah. Now, is that also true for maybe preparing for, you know, uh, an era in life where it's possible? Uh, oh, totally. Um, actually one of my books is called, uh, green prosperity, uh, quit your job, live your dreams. And, uh, most people are actually within about five years of retiring, uh, if they, um, just have a, um, a good plan to do that. And it's not so much about uh, making more money, but as needing less. And the reason that I've been able to do the things that I like to do in my life is um, is because uh, you know I've avoided having a lot of the expenses that other people do. Uh, basically, I took my the wilderness survival skills background that I had, you know, shelter, fire, water, food, and looked at those and said, you know. Uh, how can I make a lifestyle where I have no rent, no mortgage payment, you know, no uh, energy bill and, uh, you know, pretty much no uh, big monthly expenses. And so I ended up uh, building this uh, stone and log house on a, a limited budget there. And, um, you know, it's a solar and wood heated and I have solar panels for electricity. Um, and so, um, yeah, my expenses are pretty, uh, pretty minimal. Uh, and because of that, I could afford to become a writer, uh, that I could, you know, I could go into the writing without needing to produce an income from it and write long enough until I did produce an income. And it's, uh, it's, it's turned out really well. I actually launched my own publishing company and, um, my bestseller bought me in a day has sold over a hundred thousand copies. So, um, congratulations. So it's been, yeah, thank you. Uh, you know, not having um, not having monthly bills has been what's allowed me to uh, become a writer, and it also allows me to say, uh, you know, hey, I guess I'm going to take five months and go uh, paddle the Missouri River. Living the dream, man. I know that it's taken work, and I know that it's not easy at times. But what a what a rewarding way to live your life. Uh, it's definitely been that. Definitely, yeah, definitely been that. Type two fun at times, I'm sure. But yep. boy, what have you, you know, what have you really getting a lot out of, out of this little life we have? And can I ask you this as, as a, you know, lastly, I guess, uh, I really appreciate your time, by the way, this has just been incredible. Uh, anything on the horizon for you as far as adventures or is it focusing on the book right now? Um, yeah, you know, I've still got the, uh, the bike trip and the, uh, the hike on the Appalachian trail in my mind. Uh, but I'm not not in a particular hurry. I, I tend to uh, kind of swing back and forth from doing um, the wilderness uh, type experience to um, writing and publish other business things. It's you know I don't really have to do a lot of work to sustain myself. So it's more uh, what kind of a positive con contribution can I make in the world? Uh, so you know like my primitive skills camp, working with the public school kids, get them out of the classroom. Um, and so, you know, projects like that, and uh, also uh, a president of the um, uh, Jefferson River chapter of the Lewis and Clark Trail Heritage Foundation. So we've been uh, raising funds to purchase campsites for the public 
uh, on this water trail that we've created on the Jefferson River. And uh, so, you know, just trying, I, I like to make a positive contribution to the world. I, I, I'm not really a personality that can handle playing all the time. <laughs> right, yeah. <okay. laughs> so yeah, I'll uh, I'll work my butt off for a few years, and then I'll uh, decide. Okay, now it's it's time to go play for a while. There you go, play on you know six month grueling trip down the Missouri River. <laughs> Just yeah, it's a grueling trip down the Missouri River, sunning on log uh, like turtles. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, this is one of the most fascinating adventures I've ever had the pleasure to uh to talk about so this is fantastic well thomas man i I really appreciate you taking the time and and being on the show i hope i didn't use up too much of the precious daylight hours you know i'm sure you've got a lot you got to get done out there in pony um but oh no this this was just fine and uh, really an honor to uh, be on your show so uh, thank you for having me all right yes sir all right bye bye now First of all, thank you so much for listening. It means the world to us that you choose to listen to this show. If you'd like to help us further, you can leave a review on iTunes, share us with your friends, your family. It goes a long way to grow in the show. You can also support us financially through patreon.com slash adventuresportspodcast. Link is in the show notes. And also, if you have an idea of who could be a good guest for the show, we're always looking for people to tell their story uh, about the outdoors or adventure. So if you know someone, please reach out. Email us at info at adventuresportspodcast.com. And until then, get out there and have some fun.